Father in heaven, we're going to open our Bibles. We're going to do it with great expectation. We're asking you to teach us. Now, Lord, I'm also asking that you open our hearts as you teach us. Not just our minds, but our hearts. We're going to look at some deep truth in Scripture that can change everything for us. So I pray that we will be willing recipients of what you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you'll help me communicate in such a way that I don't stand in the way of this message so that we can all hear it. And I pray, Lord, that we will listen closely. Thank you for loving us the way you do. And thank you for giving us the opportunity to know you. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever worked your way through a conundrum? Now, some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I have. I'm not positive about that. I bet you have. But just in case you are questioning that in your mind, you're not positive if you ever have, let me give you a a little help in understanding what a conundrum is. This will help. Here we go. A conundrum is a difficult problem, one that is impossible or almost impossible to solve. It's an extremely broad term that covers any number of different types of situations, from moral dilemmas to riddles. You have worked your way through a conundrum. But if you're still really trying to figure out your own answer to that question, I'll help you just a little bit more. As this definition says, there are different conundrums, different types of conundrums, like the moral conundrum. Here's a pretty good example of one. One particularly famous moral conundrum is the so-called trolley problem, in which you are standing on a train overpass and see an out-of-control train barreling toward a group of five workers on the tracks. You have a lever next to you that can divert the train onto another track with only one worker on it. Is it right to kill the one worker in order to save the other five? It's a moral conundrum, and boy, that ought to give you some good dinner table conversation as soon as church is over. Just a little something to kick around. Is it right? Is it wrong? What would you do? There are other types of conundrums as well, like practical ones. Here's a way of thinking about that. Working your way through options fit in this category. Picking a college, a major, deciding on a job, choosing your husband or wife, buying the right house, or choosing a time to start a family. The word dilemma can also be used for a practical conundrum. There are a number of different literary conundrums. I won't bore you with any of them. And then there are spiritual conundrums. One of the most popular ones in that realm today, in the world that we live in today, can be summed up like this. Can I really know God? There's people that wrestle with that question at the deepest of levels. Can I really know God? And it becomes a conundrum because of some of the passages that we find in Scripture. Let me show you three that would tend to lean the scales towards the no side of this particular question. We'll start right here. Psalm chapter 145, verse 3. The psalmist says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Can I really know God? According to the psalmist, at least on the surface, it would appear that the answer is no. Here's another one. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Again, it would look like the Apostle Paul is telling us that the answer is no. 
We cannot really know God. Here's another one from the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unknowable, untraceable, unsearchable. It appears as we read passages like this that the answer is simple. No. But then we find other places in Scripture that turn this into a conundrum, like Psalm chapter 19. Why don't you turn there with me? We're in a study of this chapter all summer long, literally all summer long. I want you to listen to what David says one more time. We'll read the whole chapter. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So then we read Psalm 19, and it appears that the scales tip back the other way to answer the question, yes, we can really know God. That's why this question fits in the realm of a conundrum, can I really know God? But the answer is yes, yes, we can really know God. Do you want to know why? Because he made himself knowable. We can know God because he made himself knowable. He could have remained distant from us, but he didn't. God came near so that we could know him. The answer is very simply, yes, yes. And we can stand on that answer because tucked away in Psalm chapter 19, the last half of verse 7, we read words like this. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Now, I say this with the utmost respect. The Apostle Peter was one of the most simple people of the New Testament. Now, let me say that again. I say that with the utmost respect. Peter was one of the most simple people of the New Testament. But he had answered this question about knowing God in a way that is really very remarkable. 
Peter in his understanding and his relationship with the Lord as he wrote about it, boiled it down in a way that, that shows us a depth of understanding that is anything but simple, but he makes it so that we can understand it. Here's what I would say Peter would say about this issue of can we really know God? He would sum it up this way, or at least I would sum up his writing this way. Knowing requires growing. If we really want to know God, we're going to have to grow in that knowledge. We never arrive at a place that we can say, I fully know God. It requires growing, and it is an ongoing process. It is an ongoing work. It is an ongoing dedication. Knowing requires growing. And you will never, ever, not ever, listen to me, not ever, get to a place that you know everything there is to know about God. One of the most fascinating things about eternity is that God gives us that long to fully know Him. When we get to heaven, there is a continual, continual knowing of God as He shows us more and more of who He is, and it takes forever to figure that out. Isn't that cool? Isn't that cool? Man, that's something to look forward to. God has more and 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 more to show us. That's spectacular. Peter knew that. He wrote about it. In the last letter that he penned, not long before his death, his martyrdom, Peter wrote a letter that captures this wonderfully. It's only three chapters long, but seven times in those three chapters, Peter will use the word know, knowing, or knowledge in such a way as to imply that it is an ongoing, growing process for us. Seven times, three chapters. Let me show you just three highlights from the book of 2 Peter. This is the last letter he wrote, the last book he wrote. Here's three highlights that teach us this. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. He comes right out of the chutes laying this out for us. May it be multiplied in you. May your knowledge be multiplied, ever growing. Here's the second one. Chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Now, if we just read that and let it stand on its own, it sounds like we receive the knowledge of who God is and as a result of that, grace and mercy come into our life and we have it all. It all comes at one time, but read on, read on and you'll see something different. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing requires growing. Now here's one more. This is found in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18. 
but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Knowing requires growing. It's an ongoing process. Yet the answer to the question, can I really know God when we boil it down? The answer is, yes, I can. And we can ask how that happens, how that knowledge comes. And David in Psalm chapter 19 would tell us, it comes through the testimony of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Psalm 19 shows us that the testimony of God is all around us. The first six verses of Psalm 19 tell us that the testimony of God is found in creation. We can get into verse 7, and the very first part of it says, The law of the Lord is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. So the testimony of the Lord is in creation, and the testimony of the Lord is in the law of the Lord, the words of the Lord. The testimony of the Lord can be seen in those things. But they're not referred to necessarily as the testimony of the Lord. David says in Psalm chapter 19, verse 7, The testimony of the Lord, almost like it's different, the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the perfect. So what is that? If it isn't creation, and if it isn't in the law of the Lord, the words of God, what is the testimony of the Lord? Certainly the testimony of the Lord is on the lips of His children. It's on the lips of believers as they retell their story of what God has done for them. As every believer retells who they were before Christ and who they are now in Christ, the retelling of our story becomes a measure of the testimony of the Lord. But I'm going to say this at great risk of offending some of you. And I'm okay with that because you didn't ask me to be your pastor to always tell you things that you wanted to hear. Sometimes I'm going to have to tell you some things that are going to hurt. And this may very well be one of them. There are times in the retelling of our story that we completely miss the point. Because in the retelling of our story, we talk only about ourselves and we throw God in as an afterthought. Folks, when that's the case, that is not the testimony of the Lord. That is just you retelling your own story. There has to be more to it. Because if all you're doing is talking about you and you're not directing people to the Lord, then you're missing the mark. And there are a lot of folks that do that in the sharing of their own testimony. They make it about them. So we have to ask, how do we avoid that? Man, am I glad you ask. By adding something special to the retelling of our story. And the Bible tells us what that is. It's found in Psalm 145, 145th Psalm. Why don't you turn there with me? Again, a Psalm of David. Verse 1, David says, I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. 
In verse 4, the answer to our question of how do we make sure that our story is God's story, the testimony of the Lord, is by commending. The word commend is in verse 4. Here it is for you, commend. has a unique meaning. It really does. I was sitting at my computer just writing, trying to figure out how to really teach that. And when I was done, I looked back and thought, okay, I I like that. I I just want to share with you what I wrote as I was putting all this together. Here it is. To commend means it takes what God has done for us and adds another element. Commending adds power. That's why it goes beyond a retelling to a commending a telling of God's faithfulness with an exhortation, a place for others to know, believe, and trust so they can believe similar truths from the same Lord. That's what it means to commend. That's what it means to share with other people your story, move out of the retelling of your story so that you get into the telling of God's story, commending Him to others with a passion, with a desire for them to know what you have experienced. That's when your story becomes God's story. And when your story becomes God's story, your story becomes part of God's testimony. But not until you are ready to commend that story to others with a passion, with a passion that will make them want to know the God you know. And then your testimony becomes a part of God's testimony. And it's powerful when that happens. It is powerful when that happens. I want to show you an example of somebody that figured this out in the New Testament. His story is found in Mark chapter 5, if you want to turn there with me. There are times that people will say, it is just hard to read Scripture. It's hard to keep my mind focused. Sometimes Scripture seems boring to me. If you're one of those people that feels that way, then you need to read Mark chapter 5 on a regular basis because it'll make your imagination go wild. I love how this is told. John Mark writes, verse 1, They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of this man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had been, the one who had had legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs, and they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, 
The man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now listen to verse 19. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. This man was commending He was commending the Lord to others by telling everyone that would listen what Jesus had done for him. That's what it means to commend for the faith, to tell others what the Lord has done for you. And when you do that, your testimony is becoming God's testimony. It's what he has done for you. I love how R.C. Sproul captures this and teaches on this passage. The power of transforming people is not found in my personal testimony. It's found in the proclamation of Christ. That's, that's the power of God and the power of testimony. It really is. And that sets the stage perfectly for us to ask this question. What really is the testimony of God? And the simple answer is Jesus. The testimony of the Lord that is sure is Jesus. The testimony of the Lord that is sure, making wise the simple, is Jesus. Why don't you say it with me? The testimony of the Lord is Jesus. That's the testimony of the Lord. That is sure, making wise the simple. Absolutely fantastic when we recognize that. In order to really understand it, though, we have to explore the word testimony. So let's do that this morning. It is somewhat sad that modern Christianity has hijacked that word. Now, what I mean by that is we have taken the word testimony and we have made it simply the retelling of our stories. We've turned the meaning of testimony to that. But the truth is, the word testimony is a legal term. That's where it comes from. It comes out of the legal world. Here's a way of thinking about it. Testimony is a solemn declaration usually made orally by a witness under oath in response to interrogation by a lawyer or authorized public official. That's what testimony really means. It is a legal term. Now, here's the cool thing about that. Dial in. Stay with me. If you've been checking out, come back. Come back. Here's the really cool part about that. That truth is mired in Scripture. That comes from God's Word. This whole legal idea of testimony comes from God's Word. You can actually read about it in the Old Testament, the book of Deuteronomy. You don't have to turn with me. You just stay with me, and I'll read this for you. This is Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. If a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priest and the judges who are in office in those days. The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, Then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And the rest shall hear and fear, and shall never again commit any such evil among you. Your eyes shall not pity. 
it shall be life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Now, very quickly, here's what God was teaching them. If somebody brings an accusation against another person, that accusation has no bearing whatsoever unless it is established by two or three witnesses. These two or three witnesses have to back up the original accusation. But I love this part. God says, but you must vet those that are bringing the accusation. You have to test their character. If they prove to be false witnesses, then you do to them what the person that they falsely accused would have had to have endured. If they're true, if they're right, well, that's going to come out in the vetting. But you vet the witnesses. And once you've done that, then you can continue on with whatever you're doing. That's the legal precedent of the word testimony. They have to bring testimony against an individual. Now, like I told you, here's where this is going to get really cool. So, again, if you're on Facebook, get off. Come back. If you're checking Instagram, stop it. Come back. Stay with me here. God took this whole idea and he flipped it around for his son. God took this whole idea and he flipped it around for his son, giving three witnesses that will verify who he is. Are you following me? God gave three witnesses to verify who he is, that he can be trusted. Now you find that in the book of 1 John. 1 John chapter 5. Turn there with me. Because we are about to look at a passage of scripture that a lot of people just want to skip over and never pay any attention to because it can be hard. But we are going to make wise the simple through the testimony of the Lord, which is great. Three of you caught that. The testimony of the Lord is Jesus. And we're going to make wise the simple through that testimony. Verse 1, 1 John 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Now there's the testimony of God again. The testimony of God is? Jesus. Jesus. Great, we're doing better. Now, we are about to make wise the simple. Here we go. Verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning the Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning his Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. That is the testimony of the Lord. And it is sure. And the testimony of the Lord is Jesus. Jesus. 
And here's how God flipped the nickel over and put three witnesses to verify that. He did it through the water, through the blood, and through the Spirit. Now, like I said, I want to make wise the simple. So here we go. The water, that represents the baptism of Jesus. At his baptism, God spoke from heaven and said, This is my son with whom I am well pleased. He just verified the witness. The blood is representative of the crucifixion. At the crucifixion, God verified who Jesus was through the miraculous several times, through darkness, through earthquake, through open graves and the rending of the veil. God just spoke on behalf of his son. This is truly my son. And the third one, the Spirit, in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came down from heaven, he came down as had tongues of fire. And right after that, Peter preached on the southern steps of the temple a message about who Jesus was. And the Holy Spirit has been testifying ever since, directing people to the water and the blood. And those three testify on his behalf, giving us no reason to question because that vets who Jesus is. He is the Son of God and he is the testimony of God. Now this is why this is so cool. Now again, if you've checked out, come back. You need him on your side. You need him on your side because you're being accused every day. You are being accused of all of your sins, of all of your past. You're being accused by the devil, by Satan. He's called the accuser of the brethren. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, we read these words. And I heard a loud voice in heaven, John writes this, saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. Satan stands before the throne of God all the time bringing accusation against you and against me. And every time he does... Every time he does, this is what happens. The testimony of the Lord, which is so sure, speaks. And the testimony of the Lord is Jesus. So when that happens around the throne of God, Jesus stands up and says, Stop it! He's mine. She's mine. And all the accusation that you're bringing holds no merit whatsoever. He is mine. She is mine. I died for them. That's the testimony of, of God, is when Jesus stands up on our behalf and says, I took care of all of it. I took care of all of it. Had a conversation the other day with a man who can't come to church right now, and he asked if we could bring communion to him because he needs communion to remind him of the testimony of the Lord, which is so sure. To remind him because of the things of his past, he needs that continual reminder that Jesus is standing up on his behalf saying, none of that matters. I took care of that. He's mine. She's mine. The testimony of the Lord is sure because the testimony of the Lord is Really? You guys died off. Everybody in the back just died off on me. Let's try again. The testimony of the Lord is Jesus. That's right. I was trying to figure out how I was going to finish this message. and All week long, I've kind of been resisting doing it this way. 
But yesterday I was in my office tying it all together and I just decided I'm going to do this. It's an old story. It's been shared a lot. I've, I've shared it myself and that's why I didn't want to do this. But there just isn't another way. And so I decided this is the way to go. A guy named Woodrow Kroll wrote this story. Listen close, will you? A wealthy man and his son loved to collect rare works of art. They had everything in their collection from Picasso to Raphael. They would often sit together and admire the great works of art. When the Vietnam conflict broke out, the son went to war. He was very courageous and died in battle while rescuing another soldier. The father was notified and grieved deeply for his only son. About a month later, just before Christmas, there was a knock at the door. A young man stood at the door with a large package in his hands. He said, sir, you don't know me, but I'm the soldier for whom your son gave his life. He saved many lives that day, and he was carrying me to safety when a bullet struck him in the heart, and he died instantly. He often talked about you and your love for art. The young man held out his package. I know this isn't much. I'm not really a great artist, but I think your son would have wanted you to have this. The father opened the package. It was a portrait of his son, painted by the young man. He stared in awe at the way the soldier had captured the personality of his son in the painting. The father was so drawn to the eyes that his own eyes welled up with tears. He thanked the young man and offered to pay him for the picture. Oh, no, sir, I can never repay what your son did for me. It's a gift. The father hung the portrait over his mantle. Every time visitors came to his home, he took them to see the portrait of his son before he showed them any of the other great works he had collected. The man died a few months later. There was to be a great auction of his paintings. Many influential people gathered, excited over seeing the great paintings and having an opportunity to purchase one for their collection. On the platform sat the painting of the sun. The auctioneer pounded his gavel. We will start the bidding with this picture of the sun. Who will bid for this picture? There was silence. Then a voice in the back of the room shouted, We want to see the famous painting. Skip this one. But the auctioneer persisted. Will someone bid for this painting? Who will start the bidding? 100? 200? Another voice shouted angrily, We didn't come to see this painting. We came to see the Van Goghs, the Rembrandts. Get on with the real bids. But still the auctioneer continued, The sun, the sun, who'll take the sun? Finally a voice came from the very back of the room. It was the longtime gardener of the man and his son. I'll give $10 for the painting. Being a poor man, it was all he could afford. We have $10. Who will bid 20 Give it to him for $10. let us see the masters. $10 is the bid. Won't someone bid 20 The crowd was becoming angry. They didn't want the picture of the sun. They wanted the more worthy investments for their collections. The auctioneer pounded the gavel. Going once, twice, sold for $10 man sitting on the second row shouted, now let's get on with the collection. The auctioneer laid down his gavel. I'm sorry, the auction is over. What about the paintings? Again, he said, I'm sorry. When I was called to conduct this auction, I was told of a secret stipulation in the will. I was not allowed to reveal that stipulation until this moment. Only the painting of the sun would be auctioned. Whoever bought that painting would inherit the entire estate, including the paintings. The man who took the sun gets everything. God gave his son 2,000 years ago to die on a cruel cross. Much like the auctioneer, his message today is, the son, the son, who will take the son? Because you see, whoever takes the son gets everything. And that... And that is the testimony of the Lord. And it is sure 
and it makes wise the simple.